Matthew chapter 21. Let's just look at um, verses 4 and 5 again. So Matthew 21 and verses 4 and 5, which read, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the title of my sermon this morning is King Charles Christian Coronation Circus. King Charles Christian Coronation Circus. I'd like to pray before I get going with the message. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that, well, you make it clear how a king ought to behave, how even, you know, we can see see a, a type of coronation here in this passage. And Lord, uh, we, you know, there's so many stark differences between, the, you know, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the worldly kings of this world, Lord, we, um, we I pray that you just help me to make that clear, to help me to, to, to preach the message that you've laid on my heart clearly and accurately, Lord, help me to do it in the right way, in the right spirit. If everyone to have attentive ears, Lord, please uh, fill me with your spirit, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Right, keep a finger here and turn over to Romans chapter 13, Romans 13. Unless you've been in hiding recently, you will, no you will have noticed a big event has just happened in this nation. King Charles III had, has just had his coronation and from, I saw the highlights and, and read quite a bit about it. From what I could tell, it was an absolute disgrace. Okay, it was an absolute disgrace. A circus-like mix of false religion, idolatry, wasted millions, wasted times, ecumenical brainwash. Uh, uh, more men in dresses and down at the local library it seemed as well and uh, and sh in fact they even had uh, I don't know anyone heard this one apparently they claimed that they had shards of the original cross of Jesus Christ incorporated in some bizarre orb like thing with a cross on top anyone heard that stuff yeah, this is what they're claiming. Oh, yeah, yeah, they've got shards of the original cross. All this kind of just worshipping of just nonsense. The, the, the holy anointing oil was apparently from the Mount of Olives. I'll tell you what, some, some guy out there saw them coming, didn't he? He's like, yeah, I've got this special Mount of Olives olive oil. It's probably Tesco's own brand, wasn't it? <laughs> but I, I was thinking about King Charles's coronation, and, and then I was thinking about what a stark contrast it, it is to, to the true king and his coronation. Because you could argue that Jesus Christ's final entry into... Jerusalem, followed by his crucifixion, was a type of coronation of the King of Kings, wasn't it? And, and thank God that there is a stark contrast, okay? Otherwise, a millennial reign doesn't sound quite so pleasant, does it, if we're being ruled by someone anywhere near like King Charles, okay? Um, However, we're going to look at some of the differences. But before we do, I want to clear up a false teaching out there in case people are starting to wonder now, thinking, wait a second, is, can, is he allowed to do this? You know, because what about Romans 13? Well, we're going to turn to Romans 13. Uh, in fact, you've turned, haven't you? Because one false teaching is that Romans 13 says we can't criticise the government, or in this case, the monarchy that we're subjects of. But, but is that what Paul is telling us in Romans 13? Let's have a quick look at Romans 13, just to clear that up before we get started properly. Romans 13 in verse 1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So God ordains leadership, doesn't he? No, God didn't choose King Charles to be king, same as he didn't choose Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot. The Emperor Nero, okay? And, and of course, there are these bizarre, uh, you know, um, Calvinists that would believe this, that would think that he basically chose all these, like, weird psychopathic leaders of the past, you know, to fulfil his will or something else. No, he, he doesn't choose these people. He instituted or appointed leadership. And whether that's in the home, by the way, it's not just in, in government, in, in the church, in the workplace, in the region even, and in the nation, we're to be subject to the highest to the higher powers the highest power is god okay so we're to be subject to the higher powers and the highest at the top of that is god so if your boss tells you to do something you do it unless a bigger boss tells you not to yeah so so for example i don't know if, if my if i was working a company and my boss tells me to do something and then his boss comes along and says i don't want you doing that who am i going to listen to and listen to the higher boss, right? That's how it works in life. And, and if what you're told to do is contrary to what God tells you to do or not to do, then you do what God tells you to do, yeah? Okay, that, that's a clear teaching above. Verse 2 says, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou them not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Now that's how it should be, shouldn't it? Okay, that's how it should be. Verse 4 says, For he is a minister of God to thee for good. 
For if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Look, like it or not, without government, without police, without leadership, it would be absolute mayhem. Okay, make no mistake about it. However many kind of anarchy type ideas you might have had in the past, it's not a good thing, right? It would basically, basically be the biggest numbers and the most violent would rule. Okay, and I don't really like the sound of that. When you see how scummy some people are out there, I don't think that would go too well, would it? Okay, so for that reason, for that reason, we should pay what's due. We? Look, we need a police force. We need government. Okay, otherwise it would be it would be it would be horrible. Okay, verse seven says, "Render therefore to all their Jews tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor." Now. We don't like what they might spend a lot, our, a lot of our taxes on. However, if you don't like it, go to somewhere else. Yeah, don't start them becoming a bad citizen because we need, look, we, we need a government at the end of the day. And if we all just refuse to pay taxes then ultimately we're not going to have a government. Yeah. OK, so we do need that. We're to pay it. We're to give respect to those in leadership in our lives. And that's all areas as, as well. However, turn over to Ephesians chapter five, because the highest power, God, he also tells us to shine the light upon evil okay so yes we're to to submit to the leadership in our lives however also to shine the light on evil as well in the world ephesians 5 and verse 11 says ephesians 5 11 says and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather reprove them for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret but all things that are reproved and made manifest for the, by the light for whatsoever doth make manifest is light so we are told to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness to make them manifest by the light of God's word. And often those things are being committed by the very leaders that we're told to submit to. So we submit to the ordinance of leadership, we pay our custom, we give our honour, we give what's due. However, we're also told to shine our light upon wickedness, aren't we? And especially when it comes to wickedness in the name of Christianity. Okay, that's a clear teacher of the Bible. That's something that we should be doing. That's what something a preacher should be doing. Turn to Luke 3 whilst I read Matthew 11, 11. You turn to Luke 3. Matthew 11, 11 says, Verily I say unto you, this is Jesus Christ speaking, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So amongst sinful men, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay, according to Jesus Christ. However, in heaven, there's no more sinful flesh, so even the lamest Christian is still greater than him, right? Okay, but in life, in the world, amongst people that walk this earth right now, or at least you could say up until the point of John the Baptist, but I don't think probably there'd be, you could say many have, have exceeded John the Baptist, there was not a greater than John the Baptist. That preacher in the wilderness, John the Baptist, said this in Luke 3, or at least we're told what he said in Luke 3 and verse 19, it says, but Herod the Tetrarch, talking about John the Baptist, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So that great man reproved the king. That great preacher reproved the king, not just for taking his brother's wife, adultery, sounds a bit familiar that, doesn't it? Um, however, not just for adultery, but according to Luke chapter 3, for all the evils which Herod had done. Sounds like he ripped face. <laughs> that must have been some strong sermon, or maybe it was a sermon series. I don't know, because Herod was a pretty wicked leader, wasn't he? But John reproved him for all the evils he had done as well. Okay, John let him have it. And whilst you're in Luke, turn to chapter 13 to see a greater than John the Baptist. Wait right, a second, didn't I say there's no one greater? Well, there is one greater than John the Baptist. And this, this uh, well, do we call him man or do we call him God? Because it's Jesus Christ. And, and he was using an insulting name for King Herod. In Luke 13 and verse 31, it says, The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Not exactly a term of endearment, was it? So if the gloves come off in this sermon, I'm in good company. All right, so uh, the, the way I see it, I'm, I'm perfectly entitled. Jesus Christ called him a fox. The greatest that's ever lived, John the Baptist among men. Um, well, he reproved him for all the evils he'd done. Okay, so look, 
and last point on this, in case anyone's out there thinking, well, what's Charles' coronation got to do with Jesus Christ in the Bible anyway? So, look, can't worldly secular leaders, you know, do what they want to do? Well, according to King Charles, according to the arch-villain of Canterbury and the arch-villain of York as well, and apparently some bloke in a dress from the Church of Scotland, everything. Because he was presented the Holy Bible by the Right Reverend Dr Ian Greenshields, moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, who then said this to Charles, Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as a rule for the whole government, uh, sorry, whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords, here is wisdom, this is a royal law, these are the lively oracles of God. Apparently it's a rule for the whole life and government of so-called Christian princes, he called it the royal law, didn't he? So let's see an example in those lively oracles of God of a true king and how his coronation looked then. And let's see if we can compare and see how Christian this event was. Go back to Matthew 21, where we're going to see the processional part of the, for, for me, the coronation of the King of Kings. But before we do, let, let's remind ourselves of what happened yesterday. So the, the whole event was estimated at between 100 and 150 million pounds, the cost. However, that was the cost of the event minus the security bill, which apparently cost about the same. So the true cost was around £300 million. £300 million is coronation yesterday. Now, you might be thinking, well, it's up to them what they spend their money on, isn't it? Thank God that they're so rich, eh? According to Forbes, the royal family apparently is worth $88 billion. And it's probably a lot more than that, but that's according to Forbes at least. So it's only a dent in their fortune, isn't it? Well, that would be the case if they were paying for it. Okay, <laughs> however, being a state circus, the bill is being paid by the taxpayer. So good old me, right? <laughs> you know, we love to do that, don't we? Here, I'm paying for it all. Yeah, well, we are. Apparently, everyone here that's paying tax is paying for that. And by the way, in case you're going, well, what's the end? Is it the end of the world? We're a prosperous nation, aren't we? Well, apparently, we're in a time of record national debt of 1.8 trillion pounds and a cost of living crisis, a crumbling health service, a rising housing crisis. And, and in case you're thinking, well, well, yeah, but it's just sort of one, they probably all cost the same, didn't they? Well, C Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953 cost around 1.5 million pounds. Equating, you, oh, well, that was a while ago, that apparently would be equating to around 50 million pounds. So about a sixth of what King Charles's coronation cost yesterday. But here's the irony, here's the irony of it all. When some poor, unsuspecting child addressed him in Westminster Abbey, he said this, Your Majesty, as children of the Kingdom of God, we welcome you in the name of the King of Kings. The King replied, In his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. It's a wind-up, isn't it? It's a wonder. Well, we're going to see the, the example of the King of Kings, because he said in the example of the King of Kings, after his example, we're going to see that. Have a look at Matthew 21 and verse 1, where it says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethpage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and this is Zechariah, Tell ye the daughter of Sion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. So Charles, on the other hand, travelled in the Diamond Jubilee State Coach. There they returned in to Buckingham Palace in the 206-year-old gold state coach. Slight difference there, right? But it wasn't just a gold coach. It actually had, had a carved tritons on the front. Anyone know what a triton is? No one said, yeah. <laughs> they all put their hands up. Yeah, yeah, we've got loads at home. They're, they're sea gods. So he had, he had these sea gods on the front of it. It's a very Christian affair, this, yeah? I mean, what on earth is that about? But, but Jesus Christ came on an ass, which we would call, we would call a donkey, wouldn't we, now? And, and a colt, the foal of an ass, okay? So a young ass, a young donkey, if you like. And obviously, you know, there, there is a slight difference between what we call a donkey and an ass, but it's all pretty similar, okay? So, 
and, and for me, in case you want to, what's the point? What's, what's he came on both? Well, he, he's picturing that easy yoke upon two animals, okay? Matthew 11, 30 says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, okay? And for me, that's what he's kind of making a point of. But as opposed to the 300 million pound bill to his people for his coronation alone, yeah? His yoke is easy and his burden is light, the real king, right? Which, which but apparently, apparently came not to serve, but... Sorry, not to be served, but to serve. After the three hundred million pound bill to the nation, yeah, which is a bizarre statement, considering that he will seemingly, apparently, have nothing to do with the actual running of the nation. So, what is he actually doing? And, and I've I've been thinking about this a little while because I was trying to look into this, and it's quite confusing, isn't it? Because they claim that well, he it's just a ceremonial thing, which makes you wonder well, what was the point in the whole thing. Why did we spend 300 million pounds on some guy that apparently has nothing to do with the running of the country or anything else? Yet, however, he still apparently meets up with the prime minister once a week and they have a private meeting. So what actually is going on? Do you know what it strikes me as? It strikes me that it's kind of like buck passing. So they get all the benefits, the huge wealth and all the other things that come from being the royals of the, of the country, yet they claim to have nothing to do with anything, so they never have any grief from the people going, well, why is our country such a mess, such a joke? Why is there so many wicked people in power, all this wickedness going on? But nothing to do with the royals. They've got nothing to do with it. They're just ceremonial. They just meet with the prime minister once a week and who knows what they're talking about. And apparently things have to be signed off by him and everything. Oh, but he's got nothing to do with anything. It's a bit odd, isn't it? But apparently he came not to, not to be served, but to serve. Verse 6, where you are, though, in Matthew 21, says, And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. So no golden capes, just some regular people's clothing as a saddle. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. So that was the red carpet. Uh, and by the way, when it came to the eventual crown, which we're not going to go into today, there was a slight difference too. Okay, so this is um, this the so King Charles actually wore a couple of crowns. He was crowned with the St Edward's crown. That was the one that he was crowned with, which is a solid gold frame adorned with 444 precious stones. The two arches have an orb and a cross representing the Christian faith, apparently. Okay, so again, look, they want to bring Christianity into it, so we're going to compare him by the Bible, right? Now, he also, he left in the imperial state crown. So, apparently one crown's not enough. It, it is made of gold and set with 2,868 diamonds, the largest of which is a Cullinan second. You know when your diamond's got a name, that it's an expensive diamond, right? It also features some of the most historic and legendary jewels in the collection, including the Black Prince Ruby, said to have been part of the collection since the 14th century. What did Jesus Christ wear? A crown of thorns. A crown of thorns. Bit of a difference there, isn't there? And, and we look at verse 9, it says, And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna means save now. And, and they're referring to Psalm 118. Um, it's up to you if you turn. I'm going to read it quickly. Verse 25 and 26 says, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord. I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. So basically, instead of saying, God save the king, they're shouting, save us now, son of David. The Christ who comes in the name of the Lord. Bit of a difference there, isn't there? Yeah, they're calling out to the king to save them. Whereas it seems that everyone else now says, God save this king, right? Uh, when it comes to Charles. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So they hadn't been flying in celebrities for the past week, right? And verse 11 says, and the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Uh, and my title is King Charles Christian Coronation Circus. Number one, because it claimed to be a Christian coronation, it lacked meekness, okay? Point number one, it completely lacked any meekness at all. Jesus Christ came meek, didn't he? He came meek and lowly, riding upon an ass and the colt, the foal of an ass. Okay, have a look at verse 12, though, where you are. We're going to move on. That was an obvious point. Verse 12 says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. 
So you've got people merchandising God's house, buying, selling, trading, coming with a goal to make money, to to discuss money, to discuss work, to discuss business, etc. Nowadays, we see that in that sort of way. They they, they sell books about the Bible in some of these types of places, don't they? Or, or, Or books by the pastor. Or when it comes to Westminster Abbey, which claims to be a house of God, by the way, they usually charge £27 for an adult to enter. So you want to even go into that so-called house of God. Talk about merchandising the house of God. There's a guy there charging you to even walk in there. £27 apparently to go into Westminster Abbey on a normal sort of tourism day there. Now, Jesus went and cleaned the place up, didn't he? Yeah, he, he kicked them out. And these aren't the only types of people, though, to be kicked out of God's house, are they? Turn to 1 Corinthians 5, where we see a list of types of sinners that Jesus Christ says to turf out and therefore would have personally kicked out too, yeah? So, look, I'm not saying these people necessarily weren't there. However, if there's evidence there, oh, the, the, the covetous were just there selling stuff, right? He kicked them out. Jesus Christ would personally kick them out as well. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9 says this, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. Okay, so we're not talking about those of the world, the unbelievers. Verse 11 says, but now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother. Okay, so there are certain people that claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ that are in a church which should be kicked out. He said, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such and one know not to eat, for what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now, admittedly, these are supposed believers, aren't they? These are people that are called a brother. These are people that are part of the church. But, but half, half of that crowd yesterday claimed to be believers. Half of that crowd, at least, claim to be believers and if you went on that on what they claim to be they claim to be Christians they seem to claim to be Protestants apparently they claim to believe the Bible because that was meant to be part of the Protestant faith well fornicators and by the way without even going anywhere else that's all the sodomites out of there isn't it without even going into the reprobate doctrine okay that's sodomites kicked out of Westminster Abbey that would have emptied quickly wouldn't it and, and pretty much any other adult there that's, who's not married, most adults, let's be honest, sadly, are fornicating, not married, but um, that's nowadays standards, they would have been kicked out as well. So Westminster Abbey would have got pretty, pretty empty pretty quickly, wouldn't it? But let's keep going. Covetous. And that's pretty much most of the rest of the high-profile, money-obsessed elite there, isn't it? Covetous, people that basically have an inordinate affection, desire for money especially, but things and stuff of other people's, but especially money. An idolater. So that's all of the Church of England dress-wearing mob gone. Yeah, they wouldn't have even had anyone to ordain him. Idolaters, gone. Yeah, people that make a, basically worship false gods. Yeah, that's, that's the idolaters gone. Railers. That's all the representatives of the press gone, because a railer is someone that basically... Basically lies, slander, false accusation, etc. Railings, always dishonest. That's the media gone. Extortioner. And that's probably all of the former prime ministers at least gone, because apparently they had seven former prime ministers and any other members of parliament, they're gone as well. However, the truth is that probably none of those people there are actually saved. Yeah? None of them have actually trusted Jesus Christ's salvation, as opposed to the works of Anglicanism, or any of the other false works salvation being represented there, because uh, there was a few different flavours there. So, so maybe King Charles wasn't doing much wrong on that, on that basis. However, during the proceedings this happened, the king placed his hand on the Bible. And this is what was really winding me up about it. Otherwise, I might not have even preached about this. But he placed his hand on the Bible and the archbishop administered the oath and said, Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, your other realms and the territories to any of them belonging or pertaining, according to their respective laws and customs? The king replied, I solemnly promise so to do. 
The Archbishop said, will you to your power cause law and justice in mercy to be executed in all your judgments? The king replied, I will. The king knelt at the chair of the state, although I think they had like a sort of moving kind of cushion stool thing for him. The archbishop said, will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Hear that again. He said, will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? They continued, will you to the utmost of your power maintain the United Kingdom, the Protestant reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain and preserve inviolably the, inviolably, sorry, the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline and government thereof as by law established in England? And will you preserve unto the bishops and clergy of England, to the churches they're committed to their charge, all such rights and privileges as by law do or shall appertain to them or any of them? So the king replied, and by the way, that included... Will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? And the king replied, all this I promise to do. The king placed his hand on the Bible and said, the things which I have here before promised I will perform and keep, so help me God. The king kissed the Bible. Now, at this point, Okay, had he actually been sincere, he should have maybe got up, grabbed one of those ceremonial swords and, and then proceeded to, to maintain the laws of God, shouldn't he? Because the room was literally full of people worthy of death, according to the Bible. According to the Bible, that, I mean, half these people in that room should have been put to death. The, I mean, sodomites, false prophets, warmongering murderers like Tony Blair, child abusers like his brother Andrew Epstein's buddy. Yeah, all in the room. He should have got one of those swords and gone, right, time to go to work. Yeah? <laughs> really? If, if he had meant his promise, right? Serial adulterers like his wife Camilla. But then he would have had to fall on his own sword, wouldn't he? <laughs> At the end of it all. But he's just made that promise, isn't he? I mean, the nerve of it. And, and look, it's, it, it's not really shocking, apart from the fact that he's promising on the Bible and kissing the Bible. And he's not just kick, kissing some false perversion because it's nice and old and looks a bit more, you know, official. They kiss the King James Bible. Okay, so he was asked, will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? He said, I solemnly, I bet he was solemn about it, I solemnly promise so to do. It's a mockery, isn't it? It's an absolute mockery. And now you might say, well, it's not in his power. So why did he sol solemnly promise to do so? So why did he solemnly promise to, up, to the utmost of his power maintain the laws of God? Even the promise to govern the people according to their respective laws and customs, remember he promised that, yeah? Should have resulted in half of those in attendance probably being arrested for some form of corruption, government corruption or something similar, shouldn't it? By the laws of the land. But, but do you know what the truth is? The, the truth is he was lying, okay? He was lying. He doesn't care about any of that because whilst his brother was buddying up with, with Jeffrey Epstein, the serial paedophile, and when I say buddying up, I mean even after he was arrested, they were hanging out together, even after he'd done a, a short spell in prison, a short spell in prison, Charles was best mates with Jimmy Savile. I mean, explain that to me. King Charles, our king, that with all these people with their flags out and God save the king, and let's be honest, a lot of it's just an excuse to be patriotic without being called a racist. But <laughs> that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Yeah. But really, really, he, he's best mates with Jimmy Savile. Sorry, he was best mates with Jimmy Savile because Jimmy Savile's now dead. Who, by the way, he led the tributes to Jimmy Savile after he died. So... What's that about? And you go, oh, well, he must just not have known. So are you trying to tell me that whilst half of the BBC apparently knew he was abusing children, the royal protection didn't? That all the people around the royalty that are checking people out, background checks on people coming into contact with him, they had no idea yet half of the BBC knew. That apparently the T-boy at the BBC knew and everyone else. I mean, everyone knew he was, an, he was a, just a sick, depraved paedophile, didn't they? But apparently, but the royals didn't. Do me a favour. But do you know that Savile was Charles and Diana's marriage counsellor? He was their marriage counsellor. 
Jimmy Savile was trying to mediate and help their marriage to still be a success. It wasn't just Charles. I mean, he had, he had some like nickname for Squidgy or something for Diana. Savile did for Diana. What's all that about? And, and look, look, I don't think any of this is debatable either. Okay, he's going, is this all rumour? He was described as Charles's mentor by Diana. Okay, this is fact. He she described Savile as a kind of mentor to King Charles. Apparently, he helped him with his public image. And, and like I said, when he died, Charles led the tributes to him. Now, apparently, Savile got in with the royals because you're going, well, how on earth? How did they even become friends? I mean, where were they hanging out together to become friends? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Well, well apparently he got in with the royals after a character reference from Charles's uncle, Lord Mountbatten, who had known him for years. Oh, well, that's it then. Good old Uncle Dickie, he was known as, Lord Mountbatten. Charles and Mountbatten were apparently very close. He was like his favourite uncle. So, of course, he trusted his recommendation. Yeah? Okay, now, oh, poor Charles. Interestingly, FBI files allege that Mountbatten was a sodomite and was unsurprisingly into small boys. Okay, and the FBI apparently have a lot of evidence of this, and some of their files have come out more recently because I think they have a delay, don't they, when these things get released. So his favourite uncle, Charles' favourite uncle, was actually a paedophile as well, who recommended him to the paedophile Savile, who he ended up being best friends with, who was a mentor to him and was involved in his marriage and they were writing letters for about 20 years as loads of evidence of the letters and you can find different copies of them and everything else. Amazing, isn't it? And they, there's an old saying, isn't there? The apple never falls far from the tree, does it? And what's going on there? What's going on there? Now, of course, I can't stand here and categorically throw out an accusation at him. However, he was best friends with Jimmy Savile. And, and let's be honest, <laughs> let's be honest, just away from any of that stuff, if Jimmy Savile or the equivalent of him walked in here today, would anyone go, that's kind of best mate material? He's a weirdo. He's a complete weirdo without anything else coming out. The guy was a complete weirdo, wasn't he? Yet apparently, he was Charles Salt, good mentor. So I wonder what else they were kind of, they had in common, eh? Very odd, isn't it? Very odd. But would he have kissed the Bible, do you think, had it been open on Leviticus 2013 then? Do you think, do you think if, like, if, if I opened a Bible and said, oh, I need you to like, just make a vow here, let me show you a verse though first. Leviticus 20:13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Do you think he'd kiss that? Because that would be half his buddies dead, wouldn't it? That would be old Uncle Dickie put to death. That would have been Savile put to death. And the rest of these weirdos. How about had it been open on Matthew 18 and verse 6, which says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. It's just, just ridiculous. How many of these people in these upper echelons of society seem to be involved in abusing children? They're everywhere. And in the upper echelons of the religion that he seems to be a proud... What is he, some defender of the faith? Or is it faith? So I can't work it out now. Leviticus 2010, how about that? And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbour's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Do you think he would have kissed that verse? I bet he wouldn't. I bet he wouldn't. No, because if he maintained the laws of God, Westminster Abbey would have been a bloodbath, wouldn't it? It would have been a bloodbath. But, but it's the law and justice that he swore to, isn't it? He swore to that law and justice. He swore to the law of the Bible. He swore to uphold that. And if he was really a godly king, then he would be making sure that we have the laws of God in this nation, wouldn't he? Which, well, back in Matthew 21, let's go back to Matthew 21. Jesus Christ rode into town on the ass, okay? But then marched into the temple and kicked out the covetous traders, didn't he? which isn't the image that the world wants to portray of Jesus. They like the meek and humble bit, but not the judgment, don't they? Okay, but Jesus Christ, no, he walked in there and he kicked out the traders. Verse 12 says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money chambers, changers, sorry, and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. See, a real king punishes wicked doers, instead of sitting in his palace doing nothing. 
apparently. I don't know. I can't work it out. Okay. When it's at least it's at least quite a confusing picture, isn't it? When Jesus Christ returns, he's coming in judgment, isn't he? So, so they can laugh it up with all their mockeries, because really it's a laughing stock. It's a mockery of Christianity. That went around to the world, yeah? And people who don't really know are looking at that, going, oh yeah, that, that's Christianity. What a joke. What a joke. A load of weirdos in dresses, waving, you know, weird things around and ceremonial this and that and, and all the bizarre stuff, kissing Bibles and everything else. What a mockery. Well, he's sitting there with his, with his divorcee second wife, like, who he committed adultery with. Like, what a laughing stock the whole thing was, wasn't it? When Jesus Christ returns, it's in judgment. You don't have to turn to Matthew 24, 30 says, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. This is Jesus Christ's return. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Yeah, they can laugh it up, they can mock him, but what, that day's coming, isn't it? That day's coming. King Charles's Christian coronation circus. Number one, it lacked meekness. Number two, it lacked righteous judgment. Yeah, he wants to claim to be following the example of Jesus Christ. He wants to claim the Bible. He wants to claim to be a Christian prince. Well, he lacked any form of righteous judgment. There's half the room were, were either biblical or at least by, by, by the government law standards criminals. Then verse 14, where you are, says this. It says in, in Matthew 21 and verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. So you've got Jesus Christ healing people, which is a picture of salvation. These religious leaders saw the wonderful things that he did, yeah? The children shouting out who he is, the Christ, the saviour of the world, the prophesied son of David. Surely they'll now fall down and worship him, no? Surely they'll repent of their false work salvation. They'll put their trust in him, wouldn't they? No, they were sore displeased. Why? Because they were Christ-rejecting false prophets. That's why. The same people that a couple of chapters later, you can have a look there while you're in Matthew, go to Matthew 23, the same people that in Matthew 23, 13, he said, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. In verse 33, he said, verse 33, he said, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? It's a rhetorical question because they can't. They can't escape the damnation of hell. They're what the Bible calls reprobate concerning the faith. They teach and preach a false way. They're false prophets. That's why here in Matthew 21, Jesus didn't hang around with them. He didn't try to appease them. He didn't even try to win their souls, did he? He didn't go, oh, well, everyone, everyone can be saved until their dying breath. No, he said... How can you escape the damnation of hell? They can't. They're done. They're reprobate, rejected, done. He said in verse 16, it says, And said unto him, or they said, sorry, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never heard out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them. And went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. He didn't want to be anywhere near them, did he? He just left them. He left them there and walked out. He left them, went to Bethany. He didn't want to be around them. They're, they're gospel perverters. Okay? Turn to Psalm 119. And aside from the Church of England dress-wearing false prophets there, and there were quite a lot of them there on the day, King Charles' coronation had dress-wearing magic hat leaders from Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, Muslim and Sikh false religions. And probably others, but they were the ones that I saw clearly advertised as being there. So you had Buddhist dress-wearing magic hat wearers, Hindu dress-wearing magic hat wearers, Jewish dress-wearing magic hat wearers, Muslim dress-wearing magic hat wearers, and Sikh dress-wearing and magic hat wearers. And even though these people are shutting up the kingdom of heaven against men, I mean, it's unbelievable, isn't it? These people are literally preaching a false gospel. They're teaching a false way. And 
they're coming to the coronation of the so-called Christian prince, who's kissing the Bible and, and swearing to uphold the law of God and the gospel. The true profession of the gospel. Oh, by the way, come on in, everyone that's preaching another way. In John 14, 6 out of 10, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ said, no one's coming to the Father but by him. And, and even though, even though, so even though Jesus Christ said that, even though he, he promised and professed to uphold the law of God and, and the true profession of the gospel, and even though that Bible that he kissed said in Psalm 119, verse 128, our verse of the week, Psalm 119, verse 128, Therefore, this is the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay, this is the psalmist. This is Jesus Christ writing through the psalmist. He said, therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. Jesus Christ hates every false way. The psalmist in 119 hated every false way. Men of God and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, hates every false way. Buddhism is a false way. Hinduism is a false way. Judaism is a false way. Islam is a false way. Sikhism is a false way. Anglicanism is a false way. It's all a false way. It doesn't match up with the word of God. It, they're all false ways. But to top all, off all the nonsense of it all, the king then knelt before the altar and said this. He said, God of compassion and mercy, whose son was sent to be served, uh, not to be served, but to serve, give grace that I may find in thy service perfect freedom, and in that freedom, knowledge of thy truth. Grant that I may be a blessing to all thy children, of every faith and belief. That together we may discover the ways of gentleness and be led into the paths of peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What on earth is that? <laughs> to all thy children of every faith and belief, that together we may discover the, way, the ways of gentleness and be led into the paths of peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now turn to Galatians 3. What sort of nonsense is that? All God's children of every faith and belief. That's not what my Bible says. The only God, and this is a God with a small g, that has children of every faith and belief, is the devil. Well, at least he's being honest, because that's who really he was praying to, wasn't it? The devil, with a little add-on of mentioning Jesus Christ at the end. His children are everywhere. Oh yeah, they're, they're in every faith and belief, aren't they? And in fact, a lot of them were in Westminster Abbey yesterday. His children, the devil's children. But my Bible says in Galatians 3.26, For ye are all the children of God, he's talking to a church of believers here, by faith in Christ Jesus. How do you become a child of God? Faith in Jesus Christ. It's when you trust Christ's death, burial and resurrection alone for salvation. When you trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Not you believe in there's a person, a prophet, a man, a historical figure called Jesus Christ. It's when you put your trust in him for payment for your past, present and future sins. When you put all your trust on him for salvation, that means going to heaven and not to hell. That is when you become a child of God. <clears throat> and what's he talking about? What's he pre basically subtle, not even subtly, what's he pushing and promoting? This nonsense, we're all children of God. That's not what the Bible says. You're kissing the Bible and then talking a load of nonsense. John 1.12 says about Christ, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The only way you're becoming a child of God is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, all these other faiths and everything else are not children of God, and in fact their leaders are children of the devil. Because it's all the same thing. It's all just different versions of work salvation. 
Charles said that together we may discover the ways of gentleness and be led. <laughs> he did say like that, didn't he? And be led into the paths of peace. <laughs> Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He knows what he's doing with that ecumenical wording as well. Do you think that was just kind of, oh, well, what does that mean? What does it not? Paths, plural, paths of peace. The whole thing was an ecumenical brainwash session. That's what it was. It was, oh, well, you know, I'm a defender of the faith, but it's basically all faiths in a subtle kind of way, non-direct way of doing it and be led into the paths of peace. Turn to Matthew 10. Because there's only one path of peace. And it's between God and men through the mediator Jesus Christ, isn't it? You're turning to Matthew 10. First, Be- First Timothy sorry, 2, 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Those other many paths are all many paths to hell. And really, they're all many paths in the same sort of way, aren't they? Yeah, the terrain's slightly different. Yeah, you can kind of go this way, that way, or that way. But they're all going that way. Okay, they all go one way or another down to hell. And do you know what all those paths are doing? They're all basically telling you you can work your way to heaven. You can work your way to their version of heaven. Whether it's Buddhism's weird version of heaven being actual spiritual nirvana extinguishment. They're working to, to death, but let's not go down there. The rest of them, it's all just a version of heaven. But all of them, whether it's extinguishment or whether it's some version of heaven, whether it's Valhalla or whether it's some however many virgins with the twisted paedophilic Islam or whatever it is, it's all work salvation. It's all based on you following their steps, their five pillars, their, you know, eight truths or whatever they call it, their seven sacraments or whatever it is. Whatever it is, the Ten Commandments of pretty much Anglicanism to some degree, depending on who you speak, because none of them seem to make their mind up. As long as it's some form of works, they're happy. It's all about you working your way to heaven, but mentioning something about Jesus Christ if you claim to be a Christian version of working your way to heaven. Okay, but they're all doing the same thing. They're all different paths to hell. Because the Bible's very clear that broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be which go in thereat. Okay, because straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, few there be that find it. And it's not because it's hard, it's because they all just want work salvation. They're all going down the route of work salvation, they're all going down to hell. And the gospel is at odds with all of those different flavours. Doesn't matter if they pay lip service to Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if they claim to love the Bible, it doesn't matter if they kiss the Bible. Okay, if they believe that they can somehow work their way to heaven, the gospel is at odds with that. The gospel, well, it's, the gospel isn't bringing peace when it comes to that. That's why Jesus Christ said in Matthew 10, 34, think not that I come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Jesus Christ came not to send peace, but a sword. A Christian prince, if he was really a Christian, if he was really in Christ, and Christ was in him, and he really believed the Bible, that he claimed to to kiss and swear upon and everything else, the laws of God, the true profession of the gospel, a Christian prince would have kicked every single one of those false, false prophets out. In fact, a real Christian prince, although it seems a bit weird by nowadays standards, would have probably chopped all their heads off. Because they're false prophets. Because they're wicked. Now look, people can choose their false way. People can choose what they want. People don't have to be believers. However, those people are wicked. Those people are liars. They're preaching a false gospel, a false way of salvation. And and King Charles welcomed them in. King Charles even claimed that there are many paths to... what, What peace is he talking about? I'll tell you what he's talking about. The ecumenical peace between all the false ways. And what ultimately is that ecumenical peace between all false ways? It's basically saying, you dare to say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. You're basically at odds with all of us. And that's ultimately what it is, isn't it? But every single one of those, he said he came to bring a sword. Every single one of those paths is cut off by the truth of the gospel, isn't it? And look, Jesus Christ came to, came to bring peace, but the peace was between God and men through the gospel, not between the different wicked, false work salvation paths of false religion. So King Charles's Christian coronation circus, number one, it lacked meekness. Number two, it lacked righteous judgment. And number three, it lacked the truth. It lacked the truth. It was a shambles. It was an embarrassment to the name of Christ. 
And look, if anyone's sitting there going, oh, well, I like, you know, they mentioned God, isn't that a good thing? They even had the King James Bible. I mean, that's, it's all right, isn't it? Look, it was an absolute shambles. It was an embarrassment. It was a shame on the name of Christ. It was an embarrassment to our nation. It was an absolute mess, wasn't it? It was an absolute mess. It was some higher church poncing around in dresses, doing a load of weird stuff, absolute nonsense. It's got nothing to do with Christianity or very little. Okay, and, and that wound me up. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but that wound me up. Just watching the highlights of it wound me up. I mean, I was just ranting at home about it. <laughs> that needed preaching. But look, yeah, if you're sitting there going, what do we get out of that? I'll tell you what you get out of that, yeah? What you get out of that is people who say the name of Jesus Christ or say the name God or anything else, that doesn't mean they're saved. It doesn't mean they love God. It doesn't mean that they follow the Bible because they kiss the Bible, okay? And what it should do as well is make you appreciate, thank God that we serve, we serve a proper king. We serve a real king. We serve a king that doesn't lord it up in, in billion pound or whatever they are chariot. I mean, who knows how much that gold chariot costs. All that stuff, all that just, just ridiculous, all that lying, all that dishonesty, all those wicked people yoking up with the wicked of the world and everything else. No, we, we, have, we have an amazing king, don't we? And, and wow, could be a lot different, couldn't it? Thank God that, you know, our, our king, well, he's not of this world, is he? We, our king's in heaven, but one day he's coming back. And when he comes back, I'm looking forward to his rule and reign and not this whatever it is. I don't even know what it is because I don't even know what power he does or doesn't have. No one seems to know. But what I do know is that, yeah, we need to submit to the ordinance. Yeah, we need to submit to the laws of the land if they don't contradict the laws of God. But you know what? I don't have to worship this guy. And I don't have to, you know, say things like God save the king and everything else, let alone pledge allegiance. Did they stop that in the end? And there's some sort of claim they're going to get everyone to pledge allegiance to him as well. But I suppose ultimately you could say, well, within reason, as long as he doesn't contradict the laws of God. But that was a disgrace to the name of Christ, wasn't it? On that, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for, um, well, thank you for the king. Thank you that we, we serve the king of kings, the Lord of lords, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that, we, you, know, you know, our kingdom's not of this world either, that... Um, you know, that, that, that we serve a risen King, Lord, um, and, and not this, just just what the world offers us. Lord, yeah, we, we need to, you know, be subject to those higher powers in life. Yeah, we need to be good citizens of this country, but we also need to shine a light on the darkness out there. We need to shine a light on false religion. Uh, we need to shine a light on, on especially false religion claiming the name of Christ, Lord. Help us to do that in the right way. Help us to, um, to, to go out this afternoon and to... You know, preached, well, the, the true religion, preached that faith in Jesus Christ alone to, to people that want to hear it, Lord. Lead us to those people. Help us get people saved and help us return for this evening's service. In Jesus' name, pray all of this. Amen.